If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. A young boy, one of six, recalls how they would listen to the radio or watch the television. In those days, you could watch television. And one afternoon, his mother called them all into the kitchen and said, there could be nuclear war. The world could end this afternoon. And then I remember a friend of mine in another part of Moscow who'd been listening to my broadcasts called in and said, Bridget, you don't need to be so careful. I'm looking outside my window and there are tanks rolling past on their way to the Kremlin. That was Bridget Kendall talking about the Cold War. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. Bridget Kendall is a BBC journalist who has spent more than 30 years reporting from across the world. She's the presenter of the series Cold War, Stories from the Big Freeze, which is currently airing on BBC Radio 4, and takes an oral history approach to the clash between East and West. Her book that accompanies the series has also just been published. And I spoke to Bridget earlier this week to find out more. Your book and Radio 4 series relate the stories of the Cold War through the voices of those who are actually there. Um, what advantages do you think this approach offers? Well, I think that very often when we look back at big arcs of history or big subjects, and Cold War is certainly a big subject, um, it can be a little daunting to try and understand it all. And even if you look at the, the big events, the summits or the crises or the treaties or the clashes sometimes, you don't really get a sense of, of what it actually felt like to be there. And so um, we thought two things. One was that if we took separate episodes and looked for ordinary people, not politicians, not diplomats, but people who just happened to be caught up in these events because they lived in a country where it was all happening, that we would be able to give a much more vivid view of what was happening. The other compelling reason why we did this, I must be honest, is if you go back to the beginning of the Cold War, 1944-45, when the, the, the Second World War in Europe was ending, these are now quite elderly people. And we thought, if we don't do this now, these stories will disappear. And we really must catch them. Uh, otherwise, it'll be like it is now with the First World War, where we're having to rely on recordings done years ago. It's no longer possible to actually find someone who can tell you themselves what it was like to be in the trenches. And I'm interested to know how the interviewees were tracked down and also how willing people generally were to talk about these experiences. Well, it was quite a big operation um, involving lots and lots of different people. So you've got 30 episodes and quite a lot of them are focused in Europe, especially at the beginning. Our first programme actually is about Greece in 1944. Before the Second World War had ended, already there were clashes in Athens in December 1944 between communist partisans and monarchists who were being backed by the British. So this is pretty ironic 
ironic because just months before, the British had been fighting with the partisans against the Nazis who had now retreated from Greece. Um, and we had to, to, to try and find people who were actually there in Athens in December 1944. It was quite a big challenge. And uh, we had to work quite hard to look for people who could put us in touch with other people, look for memoirs, were those people still alive? And actually in, the, in these early programmes, what we found, so Greece, um, the coming of communism to Czechoslovakia in 1948, the beginning of the Korean War, the fall of China to Mao Zedong's Red Army and so on. In these early programmes, the people who we were able to track down were very young at that time. And this wasn't something actually that I, I had anticipated. But actually, the, the, the stories that were being told to us were being told to us essentially by children or teenagers. And it gives actually an enormous freshness to the stories of that time, to see the Battle of Athens through the eyes of an eight-year-old boy who was sent out onto the streets of the Greek capital to see what was going on. His father was afraid that he might be arrested. He didn't think an eight-year-old boy would. And so he was an eyewitness at the time for his father. And now all these years later, he's an eyewitness for us. So sometimes you get a lucky find like that. The other thing that was essential was that we didn't limit ourselves to people who could speak English, even though the original genesis of this was a radio series for radio four, with a book, of course, translation matters less. But we thought if we're going to get refugees who are caught up in the Korean War, you can't limit yourself to people who might speak English. So we got in touch with people who could work on our behalf in Seoul, in South Korea, who could track down people who would be good eyewitnesses. And all those interviews were done in, in Korean. Did any of the interviews challenge your perceptions of some of the major incidents in the Cold War that the series covers? Well, I think some things were unexpected. One thing that sticks in my mind was um, a Russian who was a teenager in the 1960s talking about the end of the Khrushchev thaw when he was ousted by his Politburo comrades and the era of Brezhnev began, which we didn't, nobody knew at that time, it was going to last for 20 years until it finally crumbled in the early 80s. And it was a bit of the lid coming back down on top of the Soviet Union after a few years of, of what looked like reforms and hopes that things would change. And one of the people we talked to, looking back, said actually it was a wonderful time. He talked about it being the most entertaining prison in the world. He said, we knew we couldn't get out. You couldn't leave the Soviet Union. You had very limited access to information and what you could do. But the state was in control of everything. In a way, that alleviated you of responsibility. So um, it was a time when people were beginning to get involved in underground activities, underground publishing and theatres and concerts. And he said, actually, everyone had a really good time. So that's quite interesting that when you go beneath the surface, when you go down to the grassroots, sometimes what you find isn't quite what you're expecting. It's not the same as the usual stereotypes. To what extent was the Cold War itself a part of ordinary people's lives as these years and decades went on? Well, it was part of people's lives in lots of different ways. Our eyewitnesses were all sorts of different types of people. I mean, there were those who were bystanders who happened to be there, like that eight-year-old boy in Athens. There were people who were refugees, say, um, in Shanghai as the Red Army advanced, or in Korea, obviously, as the country became divided and racked by war. And then there were soldiers. It's interesting that there were the soldiers, the Vietnam vets who experienced Vietnam and what they found when they came home. And 10 years later, there were the Afghan vets, the Soviet soldiers who went out to Afghanistan. And actually, some of the things that they said were, were quite similar. 
And then you also get the peace campaigners. There's one program we did, which is about the early 1980s, when it seemed like the, the Cold War was back on again. President Reagan had become president in the United States. Tensions were ratcheting up with the Soviet Union. Detente seemed to be over. And for those people who remember, the Americans were starting to bring cruise missiles to Britain and Pershings to other parts of Europe. And this created a, a groundswell of opposition from peace campaigners, particularly around the campaign for nuclear disarmament, but other peace campaigners. And one program, we focused just on a village in England. One of our eyewitnesses was an American serviceman who was on the base, fighter bomber pilot. Uh, another was um, a local councillor who was quite sympathetic towards the Americans, but then also a woman, a mother, and a peace campaigner who spent a lot of time outside the camp in one of the peace camps and climbed over the walls to get in and tried to block lorries going in. So that, for me, actually, was one of the most surprising and refreshing programs because it was an explanation of how the Cold War affected absolutely everybody, even small villages in England, which were, you'd think, a very long way from the front line, but they weren't. They were the front line too. And you already alluded to this a little bit with the soldiers coming back from Vietnam and Afghanistan, but did you see any kind of unifying trends in the people's experiences from around the world? I think there were parallels that you could see. Quite a lot of the story in some places was about the loss of democracy on the eastern side, say in East Germany or Czechoslovakia or Poland or what happened in Prague in 1968 when the Prague Spring was crushed by the invasion of Soviet-led intervention, Warsaw Pact tanks and soldiers. And there is a story of attempts to liberate, stand up for yourself, and the enormous exhilaration that you could feel from that, that it would be a beautiful moment when you stood up to tyranny. And then in the end, when tyranny overcomes you, then it translates into despair and powerlessness and a feeling that you couldn't do anything and you had to retreat into yourself. So it's a phrase you sometimes hear today about people going into internal exile. This is something that came up quite often, people going into internal exile, because there's nothing they could do about their exterior life if um, forces of dictatorship or a police state or from all different sides came down and, and made it impossible for them to control their own lives. So that's one thing. The, the soldier's experience was another. Young men who go off with a spirit of adventure, they volunteer, they think they're going to help the South Vietnamese, they think they're going to help the Afghan people, Soviets, Americans. And when they get there, they discover to their horror that it's all about people killing each other. It's not about helping. And what's worse, there isn't really a very clear line between who's who. And the villagers that you thought you were helping actually turn out to be your enemy. And you find that your purpose is subverted and um, there's enormous horror of what you're doing. One of the Afghan vets, I memorably said, years later, that I could not wash that stain away. And you think about soldiers today and some of the experiences that uh, more contemporary soldiers have had in Iraq and Afghanistan. And we know from the testimonies we've had that it's the same thing. So that's quite interesting, I think, insight into the Cold War, that on both sides, people were having the same experience from the opposite sides of the ideological divide put in the same situation. To what extent did people on both sides of the divide think that their side was in the right? I think we... we wouldn't want to generalise about everybody's opinions from the eyewitness accounts we got. So, for example, I think that it's easier to find people who have vivid stories to tell and who want to tell it, who were able to stand back from it later and make sense of it, 
And so on the one hand, you get people who say, I had a wonderful Soviet childhood, but then in my teens, I suddenly realized it didn't make sense. And then I started listening to Western broadcasts. Quite interesting how much shortwave radio broadcasts come up in the context of particularly um, the Cold War in Europe. So they tended to be quite critical of the Soviet side. And we didn't find so many eyewitnesses who were very supportive of it. I mean, there might be people who said I was a loyal Stalinist when I was a boy, but then later on, I didn't think so. To some extent, from my own experience, I would say that mirrors what I found. Um, I've been going to the Soviet Union, as it was then, since the mid-1970s and into the 70s and 80s. I think there was a lot of disenchantment with the system and a lot of criticism. Today is more complicated. If one was making a programme about testimony today, about the world today, then you might find people, I think the polarisation would be greater. But the sort of stories that we were telling, people don't stand up very much, even on the Russian side with the divide now, necessarily for what's what went on in the Soviet Union. Even President Putin is quite critical of it at the same time that he says Stalin was a great war leader and there are things we should be proud of from that time. But um, a command economy was something which never worked very well. You can't get away from the shortages on the shelves and the fact that people didn't have much control over their destiny. So I think that that's the story that we heard. But on the other hand, what was also interesting, and if you look at other aspects of the Cold War, especially when you go further afield in places like Angola and Chile and Vietnam, um, there were people who were far more ambivalent about the Western side too, and very critical about instances where the CIA might have been involved. So it's not a one-sided picture. What comes across is a very, very complicated picture. And the powers that be on both sides were sometimes doing the same sorts of things, propaganda, meddling, fueling dissent, and so on. But when you actually come down to what life was like, then I think on the whole, people on the eastern side felt that the, the, the lot that life had dealt them was a tougher lot. Nowadays, I suppose we see the Cuban Missile Crisis as being the most dangerous moment of the Cold War. But was that how it felt to people at the time? And were there other moments that came close? I think that was the one that came closest. One man who was in Brooklyn, New York at the time, um, a young boy, one of six, recalls how they would listen to the radio or watch the television. In those days, you could watch television. And one afternoon, his mother called them all into the kitchen and said, there could be nuclear war. The world could end this afternoon. Imagine hearing that when you're a young boy. And in parallel, in Havana, another eyewitness who was in Havana at the time said, we lived two days in one. We never knew what would happen the next day. So there too, on the other side of the divide, was a feeling the world could end tomorrow. And I'm not sure if there was any other incident which really had the sense of Armageddon in the same way. The book and the series are full of dozens of amazing personal stories, but were there any that really particularly stood out for you? Well... I think the young man whose father was secretary to President Allende, Salvador Allende was the first democratically elected socialist president in Latin America, came in in 73. President Nixon was aghast in the United States and um, instructed his secretary of state, Henry Kissinger, to organise a programme to try and destabilise the regime. And in fact, another of our eyewitnesses was a CIA agent who was in Santiago at the time, although he says they didn't orchestrate the coup which brought Allende down. They were certainly watching closely and prior to that, they had been involved in stirring up some unrest. But this young man, whose father was secretary to Allende, 
On the day of the coup, when General Pinochet, the chairman of the chiefs of staff, turned with his fellow generals on the president and organised a coup against him and even bombed the presidential palace that he was holed up in, this young man was there with him. He was standing next to Allende when he made his final address. And so there is this extraordinary eyewitness account of a young boy, he probably didn't expect to be in that place. He he wasn't political. He was just with his father. But he happened to be standing next to the president of Chile at this extraordinary moment when his own armed forces turned around and decided to bomb the palace with him in it. And there are little details there which bring home to you that this is about individual people and make you think, yes, I can imagine that I might have reacted like that. For example, when they started bombing the palace... All the water pipes burst and there's water everywhere. And this young man thought, oh, no, I'm wearing my good trousers. They're going to get spoiled, which is a sort of irrelevant detail when you're thinking, well, your trousers might get spoiled. What's going to happen to you? Um, And in fact, he was later among those who rounded up and arrested and and put in a football stadium in um, Santiago. And another little detail, he says, among the ways they were tortured was not just being burnt with cigarettes. We've heard about that. We can imagine that. That's what sort of thing you imagine when people talk about torturing. But another thing that happened to him was that they shaved off his beard and then they made him eat it. Now, I'd never heard that before. That image has stayed with me. And you yourself experienced the attempted coup in the Soviet Union in the the summer of 1991. What are your abiding memories of that moment now? My abiding memory is that it was a Monday morning and that weekend before was one of the quietest, most peaceful in the Soviet Union, it had been a very hectic political period where I was always busy, always filing something. There's always something happened, some protest or new directive or speech from somebody, and absolutely nothing happened that weekend. So quiet was it that I booked a tennis court to go and play tennis on Monday morning. And then I was rung by my office at 6.30 in the morning to say there's a very odd statement on TASS, the official news agency, saying Gorbachev is ill and is um, remaining in his dacha near the Black Sea. And there's an emergency committee that's taken over and it seems like they're imposing a state of emergency. And my immediate thought was, because in those days we never really knew whether to believe what we were told officially because there was so much bombast and rhetoric, you always had to be very, very sceptical. My immediate thought was, are they just pretending to have a coup? Was this really a coup? And I went to the BBC office to start reporting on it, and I was very careful what I said to begin with, using phrases like, this has all the hallmarks of a classic Soviet coup, but not committing myself. And then I remember a friend of mine in another part of Moscow who'd been listening to my broadcasts called in and said, Bridget, you don't need to be so careful. I'm looking outside my window, and there are tanks rolling past on their way to the Kremlin. And I thought, oh, my God, it's real. So, yes, that's one of my abiding memories. Did you have any kind of sense then that the collapse of the Soviet Union was imminent? No, I didn't. I thought it would carry on. It was clear that the Baltic states were breaking away. They'd already voted for independence. Lithuania had declared that it considered itself independent. And although the centre was resisting this, imposing an energy blockade against them, for example, um, it seemed clear they were on the way to independence. And I thought possibly this might happen with the Caucasus, with Armenia and Georgia, where there was strong nationalist movements, and even potentially in Ukraine, where out of nowhere, the nationalist Ruch movement had become uh, a very powerful force for Ukraine, nationalism and the desire to see themselves as autonomous from Moscow. But I always thought that probably they would try and reach some accommodation of a confederation, where there was still ties, just much looser ties. I didn't expect it all to collapse 
collapse and disappear. And I don't think anybody else did. It was clear that the centre was being hollowed out, but it seemed so dramatic after over 70 years of Soviet rule for this enormous country which had influenced half the world and been the counterweight to the United States throughout all the years of the Cold War should just go out with a not a bang but a whimper. It just seemed incredible. Like, it was hard to believe even when it happened. It's been said that in recent times we're entering a new Cold War. To what extent do you believe this is true? Well, I think it's quite instructive, actually, to go back and look through all these episodes and think about what happened and what it felt like and what was at stake and consider if that's like today. And you quite quickly realise some very key things are different. Number one, there's no ideological divide in quite the same way. There were two systems. There was the capitalist Western system, market economy, democracy. And there was a, an Eastern system, communism, centrally controlled economy and a one-party state. And it's not like that anymore. Russia is also a market economy. Their democracy may not be like ours, but they do have elections. And we're pretty clear that President Putin and those who surround him are very sensitive to public opinion. Um, people don't live in an information blackout anymore in uh, Russia, as they used to in the Soviet Union. If they want to, they can get access to anything they like on the internet. Yes, television is dominated by state-funded broadcasters, and they have a very strong message which is in tune with what the Kremlin is saying. But if you go online, uh, it's a very different picture. And people can travel abroad, which is something they could never do in the old Soviet Union or in its satellite states. So the world isn't divided down the middle. There isn't a sense of an iron curtain in the way that there used to be in um, the old Cold War days. People can travel back and forth. And there is a lot of tension and there are differing views and there are differing attitudes towards, for example, things like Western style liberal values. We know that there are tensions, but I think that they go less deep. Uh, and I think that we're not seeing something quite so clear cut as what it used to be. But I think the other big difference is when you think about the threat. One, one, one thing in the arc of the Cold War, if, if it grew out of the Second World War, filling the vacuum that was left by the Nazi defeat, dividing into two camps, Soviet Union versus the United States, then Soviet Union joined by China and so on. Well, China was a complicated player in the triangle that became the three-way standoff between those three countries later. But if you move into the 50s, what then looms up is the nuclear threat and the idea that there's not just an ideological divide, but they're armed with nuclear weapons and between them they could destroy the world as we know it. And of course that came to its apex with the Cuban Missile Crisis. And then move into the 70s and they sort of accommodate to each other that there are two systems and we're going to live with each other. This is the era of detente. And then the 80s, as we know, is the, is the process of all this unravelling and leading to its final collapse. But if you think about the world we live in now, you, you don't have that dichotomy. And we don't focus on nuclear weapons in quite the same way. There are other threats. There is the asymmetrical threat from terrorist groups who can fly planes into buildings or can unleash lone wolves in railway stations and um, pop stadiums in, in Western cities. And then there are other people who could cause trouble in the world. People are worried about the regime in North Korea, for example, and the impact of other pressures on the world, for example, from climate change or the flow of refugees, not just from war zones, but all over the world. So it's a much more complex picture now. It isn't one side versus the other. It's less black and white. It's much harder, I think, therefore, to control and in some ways more uncertain and more dangerous. But in other ways, I think it means that we 
fundamentally are less focused on being each other's enemies. And therefore, hopefully, maybe as time goes on, it might be easier to disentangle the current tensions. That was Bridget Kendall. Cold War, Stories from the Big Freeze, is currently airing on a daily basis on BBC Radio 4 at 1.45pm. And you can listen to previous episodes on BBC iPlayer Radio. The accompanying book, entitled The Cold War, A New Oral History of Life Between East and West, is available now, published by BBC Books. And you can read an article by Professor David Reynolds, who consulted on the radio series, in the July issue of BBC History magazine, which is currently on sale. This month's issue also contains pieces on the murder of King John, the Dunkirk evacuation, and child soldiers through history, among other things. Look out for our July issue in all good retailers and in our many digital formats. And now it's time for this week's history news with our website assistant, Ellie Cawthorn. A hoard of Roman wooden writing tablets has been found at Vindolanda, a Roman fort on Hadrian's Wall. Dating from the 1st century AD, the wooden tablets consist of letters, lists and personal documents written with ink on thin fragments of birch and oak. This recent find follows the discovery of hundreds of tablets documenting life in the Roman Empire at the site in 1992. The Vindolander Trust's Director of Excavations, Andrew Burley, explained that the tablets were found spaced out along the bottom of a trench. These are not post-it notes, he stated. They were written when somebody had something of importance to communicate. We hope to learn much more about day-to-day life in Vindolander. The tablets will now be preserved and deciphered by a team of experts. In other news, a major excavation is set to take place at a Neolithic burial mound in Wiltshire. Experts from the University of Reading believe that the site, halfway between Avebury and Stonehenge, may contain human remains more than 5,000 years old. Made up of two ditches and a central building, the Neolithic Long Barrow was discovered using aerial photography. Dr Jim Leary, director of the University of Reading's Archaeology Field School, said, Opportunities to fully investigate Long Barrows are virtually unknown in recent times. This represents a fantastic chance to carefully excavate one using the very latest techniques and technologies. Well, that's about it for today, but do tune in again on Monday when we're going to be talking about the German experience of the Second World War. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast.